Our next speaker is Jen Morris. Jen began her foray into science in the most indecisive manner imaginable. She was studying both arts and science at Monash Uni. Torn between the lofty late-night discussions of her philosophy major and the intrinsic beauty of neuroscience, she quickly discovered that she was better at talking about science, so she ventured out um, to the outback with the Shell Questacon Science Circus. Sounds like the best job in the world, I think. Uh, where she's bringing the childish glee of the bubble show to remote communities. After completing a grad dip in science communication at ANU, she's now a freelance science and health writer with a side of science presenting and a dash of academic writing in public health. Ladies and gentlemen, Jen. Kind of hard to follow the costume change. <laughs> So, while, uh, while studying science communication at uni, uh, we spent many hours discussing the importance of debunking uh, stereotypes about scientists, including that they're all male, socially stunted, obsessive, mad, and potentially dangerous. Uh, so I'm now going to proceed to reinstate all of those stereotypes in one fell swoop. <laughs> Dr. William Stark was born in 1740 or 1741, no one's quite sure to a father who was either English or Scottish, because no one's quite sure, and a mother of unknown name and unknown origin, although we can only assume there was one. <laughs> but we do know that he was born in Birmingham, so that's the important part. Stark, who modestly described himself in writing as, quote, six foot tall, fit and handsome, studied medicine at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands and emerged with a fervour for scientific figure that would prove catastrophic. Stark's fascination with anatomy led him to London, where there were more opportunities to undertake cadaver dissections, his favourite recreational activity. During this time, enchanted by the intricacies of human anatomy, he became particularly fascinated by how the living body was sustained. In Stark's time, the body was viewed as a machine which burnt fuel. They knew, of course, that food was essential to life and if you didn't eat, that you would starve and die. But beyond that, Common wisdom was that it didn't really matter what you ate or what the fuel actually was. Whether it was activated almonds or homemade toffee, it didn't really matter. It was, in a sense, a gastronomic paradise of guilt-free culinary freedom with no real sense of food being good for you or bad for you. But Stark, as he always did, thought differently. He believed that some foods might be good for human health, while others were bad, an idea that to us seems so clear today but was quite outrageous in his time. And he wanted to know which of these foods was which. So in 1769, he began an experiment to find out. He wrote of his motivation, if it could be pointed out to mankind that some articles used as food were hurtful, while others were in their nature innocent, they might perhaps, from a regard to their health, be induced to forgo those which were hurtful and confine themselves only to those which were innocent. Looking around at you all drinking wholesome doses of cider, I can't help but think his faith in humanity was a little bit misguided. <laughs> his discovery did not lead to universally healthy eating patterns, surprise, but instead it laid the seeds for that little guilt-mongering voice in your head that hassles you while you're wolfing down a Big Mac, hot fudge sundae and large fries for an afternoon snack. As a man of the Enlightenment, Stark believed in experimentation over theorising, and he relished the opportunity to live breathe and vomit his own science by experimenting on himself. So he designed a series of 24 extraordinarily restrictive diets, starting with a diet of only bread and water for 31 days. 
he would add or remove various foods and subject himself to each horrid combination for a month at a time. In doing so, he became the first person to systematically study the effects of different foods on a human being. Seems reasonable and systematic. In truth, it was utterly insane. On June 12, 1769, Stark began his experiment with a delicious meal of bread and water. He proceeded to eat and drink nothing but these ingredients for 31 days. During that time, he fastidiously recorded the progress of his experiment, including the exact weights and compositions of all food and water intakes, the weather, his mood, health, well-being, and, just for posterity, his nightly urges. <laughs> he also had a particular fascination with his bowel habits, meticulously recording the timing, weight, colour, size and consistency of each and every stool. Which, looking back through his records, I tell you, was an awful lot. <laughs> After 31 days, this once fit, energetic and vibrant and possibly arrogant young man had become listless and depressed. Yet he pressed on. In accordance with his strict regime, he added sugar to the bread and water. Outrageous. Continuing this new diet for another 31 days. Next was a diet of only bread, milk and water. Again, outrageous. For another 31 days. <laughs> then only bread, water and slow-boiled beef. For another 31 days. These Spartan diets went on and on. Because of the restricted ingredients, Stark consumed nauseating amounts of single ingredients, at one point eating over 700 grams of pure sugar per day. At another time, he ate a daily dose of over 700 grams of pure animal fat per day. After just 10 weeks, while subsisting on only bread, milk and water, Stark noted the appearance of weeping sores on his body with a level of objectivity and dispassion perched somewhere between comical and incredibly disturbing. He wrote, I now perceive small ulcers on the inside of my cheeks, particularly near a bad tooth in the lower jaw. The gums of the upper jaw are swelled and red and bleed when pressed with a finger. The right nostril is also eternally red or purple and very painful. I had one thin stool. <laughs> Obsessed with his hypothesis, his stools, and the integrity of his experiment, he persisted. At one point, he subjected himself to a month of eating only a marrow-fat concoction, an oily stew with globules of fat and bone floating in it. Apologies to anyone who's eating at this moment, like the lady in the front row. He started to get overwhelming itches on his legs to the point of scratching his own skin off. Fatigued and gaunt, he would cry over the slightest disappointment, including the apparent death of a butterfly. <laughs> Yet he still found the energy to record his experience and his bowel habits in exquisite detail. He wrote, After dinner, I was drowsy, thirsty, and obliged to drink half a pint more than my allowance of water. I had considerable uneasiness in my bowels, with some wind downwards, but no stool. <laughs> so there you have it, bleeding from the gums and nostrils, barely able to move, racked by weeping boils, hair falling out and just about dying, he sweetly maintained enough 18th century decorum to use the genteel phrase, wind downwards. 
Seven months into his experiment, Stark went to see his doctor, Sir John Pringle, who concluded, after a thorough examination, that despite the diet he was on, Stark's problems were clearly caused by too much salt. <laughs> so Stark took the outrageous move of cutting back on salt, but surprisingly, his symptoms did not improve. By this time, he was eating only bread and honey pudding, a sticky pudding that has been described to me as like chewing gum that's been chewed for four days straight. The pudding he was eating half a kilo at a time, three times a day. And yet he wasted away, becoming ever more gaunt and with an odd proliferation of, and I quote, rank smelling gum tissue sprouting in my mouth. He wrote, in the evening my gums, particularly on the inside, were hot and somewhat swelled, a beginning scorbic symptom. At bedtime I was a little griped and had a soft or rather loose stool. Always finishes on the stool. <laughs> After nine months, Stark had finally realised that his symptoms were indicative of scurvy, a brutal and hideous disease which in his time killed scores of people without known cause, especially sailors, hence the Navy garb. We know now that scurvy results from a lack of vitamin C. Racked by self-inflicted scurvy, Stark looks set to become such a fatality. However, his neurotic adherence to his strict experimental regime was to save his life. His next diet to start immediately included fruit, which of course has vitamin C. This would give his body the vitamin C it desperately needed. But in a tragically uncharacteristic move, he changed his mind, opting instead for a lovely diet of honey puddings and Cheshire cheese. Of the day of this decision, he wrote, I was chilly, sometimes shivering. I was listless and uneasy. Though the uneasiness was chiefly in my bowels, surprise, <laughs> I had not the smallest appetite for food. I continued all day, extremely uneasy, sighing and moaning. Owing to my feebleness, I lay most of the time in bed, but without being sensible of any relief. On February 23rd, 1770, two days after starting the Cheshire cheese diet, Stark died. He was 29 years old. His decision to choose cheese over fruit proved fatal. I think that's a very unusual sentence, isn't it? I can't imagine, can't imagine any other scenario in which that would make sense. For a man whose early life details are so sketchy, the last days of his life are recorded in tragically poignant detail. His last record reads, nothing passes through me except sometimes a little wind upwards or downwards, and that without relief. In a tragic irony, Stark was set up for disaster by a long-term obsessive adherence to his experimental protocol. Yet his fate was actually sealed by a one-off decision to break that protocol. Adding fruit to his diet when planned would almost certainly have saved his young life. Having endured such extraordinary suffering with exceptional disregard for his life, Stark surely ought to be a martyr of nutritional science. However, his work was unpublished for another 18 years so his sacrifice was largely unnoticed. Furthermore, nobody at the time had the slightest clue about the existence of vitamins, much less their importance to human health. So the significance of his fatal experiment could not be appreciated. Sadly, it was another century before another self-experimenter, who hadn't learned from Stark's experience, made the intellectual leap of connecting vitamins to health. 
So Stark is perhaps more of a science victim than a science villain directly. But what he did manage to do was set up a disturbing precedent for self-experimentation and an outrageous disregard for ethics that uniquely characterised many of the nutrition science brethren that would follow him. But this did lead to great discoveries. Vitamin C itself was not isolated or directly linked to scurvy until 1932, 162 years after Stark's death. But this discovery only spurned more outrageous and unethical experiments. British scientists used diet restriction to induce scurvy in conscientious objectors during World War II. Whilst across the Atlantic, American scientists induced scurvy in six Iowa State prisoner volunteers who for 113 days were allowed to eat only by swallowing a gastric tube through which a vitamin C-deprived liquid goo diet was fed. Although the value of the resulting findings was hindered somewhat by the escape of two of said volunteers <laughs> midway through the experiment. Oh, the hazards of working with children, animals and prisoners. <laughs> Stark also paved the way for Dr. Joseph Goldberger, who proved that the disease pellagra was caused by a lack of vitamin B. Great guy. But not before he experimented with a diet restriction on dozens of unwitting prisoners again injected his wife with the blood of a pellagra victim in her stomach, ate handmade tablets made from the scabs, urine and faeces of pellagra victims, and invited his friends to consume these tablets at so-called filth parties. <laughs> or Dr Victor Hubert, Herbert, sorry, who gave himself megaloblastic anemia, heart problems, anal ulcers, <laughs> explosive diarrhoea and temporary paralysis by deliberately depriving himself of folic acid. All to make a point to his patients that junk food is bad for you. <laughs> I would imagine so are anal ulcers. <laughs> so tonight, let's honour their sacrifices with another round of wholesome cider. They may have made us feel guilty about it, but hey, pears are rich in vitamin C. <laughs>